This week on The Elucidators Decoding Global News, we're checking in on Brexit, the seemingly endless wrangling between the United Kingdom and the European Union to decide their post-divorce economic relationship is nearing a hard stop at the end of this year. The next few weeks may be the last best chance for the two sides to avoid an economically catastrophic no-deal outcome. Will UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson's deliberately irrational negotiating-style payoff? Or is he trying to play chicken with a cliff? We've got answers. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Elucidators. I am your host, Steve Pally, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Pete Newsom. Pete, how you living, buddy? I'm living all right, Steve. I did my first run for like in the last two months today, and I'm feeling it, you know? Yeah. Feeling kind of how like, far did you go? I think I ran two miles. That's a good number. Like, that's... Basically, yeah. the number I ever hit for any reason. So, really? the fact okay. that you, you did that off the couch, more or less, is uh, fairly impressive, I would say. Yeah. It's like running a mile and then doubling that. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> if you double the grains of rice on a chessboard, pretty soon you'll be running across the universe or something like that. I forget exactly how it goes. You're, you're moving into a realm I've never traveled to, my friend. But. <laughs> yeah. I think I just mixed a couple different stories and metaphors, but it has to do with geometric growth. Exponential stuff. Yeah, well, doubling specifically. Yeah, <laughs> that's not exponential. Let's put my lack of complete understanding of a mat of math behind us <laughs> and, and move on. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Well, I think that takes us straight to this week's crazy situation because we're in 2020 and it's one crazy situation after another. This week we are checking in on. Brexit. Yay! Yeah. And we've we've done a couple Brexit episodes over the past year or so. And we thought it would be a good time to come back in because this week kicked off two weeks of talks between the UK and the EU to try to finalize a post-Brexit deal for trade between these two entities. UK being, of course, the United Kingdom, England, Ireland, Northern Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. The EU being, of course, the European Union, which is not a state, but a collection of 20-something states in Europe. One less than it used to be, because the UK is formally leaving as of December 31st. Now, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson, has set a deadline of October 15th, which is not very far away. It's, it's less than two weeks, actually less than 10 days. Nine days from today, yeah. Yes, nine days from today. Again, the actual deadline is December 31st, but the thing is, both sides need to vote on the final agreement, and that takes time. And the Euro Parliament, basically the European Union has its own legislative body, the Parliament, is aiming for a deal by... Halloween, October 31st. Again, not very much time. So the stakes are high for these two weeks of talks. It's one of the last best opportunities for the UK and the EU to figure out what their relationship is going to be post-Brexit. Brexit is a done deal. Uh, the divorce happened earlier this year in January. 
when the UK formally notified the European Union that it was leaving. But ever since then, the two sides have been negotiating to figure out whether or not there was going to be a no-deal Brexit, meaning whether the UK and the EU would agree to terms for trade between the two, or whether the UK would bomb out with no deal. Now, we've got several major issues standing in between the two sides. One big issue turns out to be fishing rights. The president of France, Emmanuel Macron, is standing firm on a key aspect of the deal, and that's fishing rights. And this has to do with the circumstances under which EU fishing boats will have access to UK economic waters. And this is important because UK waters have some of Europe's richest fisheries. And it turns out that half of the fish caught within 200 miles of the UK coastline were by EU countries. So basically, uh, obviously, 200 miles is a ways into the English Channel in the North Sea. It's not a small amount. Um, but it's still considered uh, the, UK, the UK's exclusive economic zone. And when the UK was part of the EU, it was kind of no problem for the EU fishing countries, which include France, Netherlands, Denmark, Belgium, a couple other ones, to come in and fish these waters. Now, fishing is only 0.1% of the UK's total economy, but that 0.1%, the fishermen, are located in politically powerful coastal communities that all voted to leave the European Union because they wanted to reduce competition for these fishing waters. And in terms of like the actual stumbling block here, Boris Johnson, Prime Minister of the European Union, wants to replace the old uh, European Union quota system with annual negotiations that would help those politically powerful fishermen in those coastal areas that are now voting for the Conservative Party. And this would require foreign boats to get UK fishing licenses, which cost money, and basically put them at a competitive disadvantage. So that is roadblock the first, a impasse over fishing rights. And French President Emmanuel Macron is not backing down because he also has important coastal constituencies that vote for him, and he wants to help them. So he is not retreating, and neither is Boris Johnson, and the entire deal could fall apart over fishing rights. That's number one. Number two, state subsidies to businesses. The European Union wants the United Kingdom to commit to more restrictions so that they don't put a finger on the competitive scale in favor of UK companies when doing business with the European Union. So this is the issue by which governments are increasingly subsidizing national champions, right? You see this a lot in East Asia, particularly in China, Korea, and Japan, classically, where the government gets involved in research and development and basically directs favorable deals and money to those big businesses to turn them into national champions. And this is not a problem unless you're supposed to be doing trade with other countries because it's unfair basically for one side to be providing a bunch of advantages to its own businesses. Yeah, unfair. And yet you would think that would be the default way 
that countries would fall back on if given the choice. Yeah, and that is increasingly what's happening, actually. There's a lot of falling back, and the UK wants to fall back, too, because it wants to build up its own strategic industries. And given what's happened while it's been part of the European Union, it hasn't had an opportunity to, to develop many of those. It has some high-tech high tech stuff, biotech, and so on, but it wants more, and it wants to direct funding and contracts from the, the United Kingdom's government to, to those companies. But the EU wants a quote-unquote level playing field between European companies and British companies, basically. Mm. And this is another major sticking point. Um, Sounds like a somewhat fair thing to be asking for. Yeah. Like the, the definition of what is fair. Right. And the, the British argument in response to this is basically it's not fair because we were part of the European Union and we never had the opportunity to develop these businesses in the first place, uh, which I think is kind of questionable, but that's their position and they're sticking to it. And this is another major sticking point. So number one, fisheries. Number two, subsidies or the level playing field, depending on how you think about it. And as if that wasn't enough, there's one more wrinkle, which is not technically a part of this negotiation, which, again, is about the post-Brexit trade deal between the two sides. This wrinkle is actually part of the divorce deal between the UK and the European Union that happened earlier this year. So the British are currently considering something called the Internal Market Bill, which the conservative government unveiled in September and is, I guess, being looked over in Parliament by Boris Johnson's Conservative Party. And this is important because it affects the status of Northern Ireland, which is still part of the United Kingdom and is therefore leaving the European Union, which would not be a problem except that Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, is a separate country, south of Northern Ireland, obviously, and it's remaining in the European Union. Hmm. And Pete, you may have heard about problems between Northern Ireland and Ireland in the past. Yeah, I think some attention was was put on those at some point along the way. Yeah, quite a bit of attention, like decades worth, during which time we had bombings all over the place. We had shootings, uh, I think hundreds to thousands of deaths, people being jailed and starving themselves to death while in jail as part of hunger strikes, like real nasty stuff throughout basically the second half of the 20th century. It all came to an end in the 90s with the Good Friday Agreement. And basically, with the help of the European Union, Ireland and Northern Ireland have been at peace. Lots of problems between those two countries were solved while they were both part of the European Union, leading to an open border between the two. Yeah, and coming to a solution to those problems was a huge achievement. Massive, yeah. A lot of people thought might never happen. And it did. Anything that puts that at risk should be considered very bad. Very bad, yeah. And and like backsliding on this point sucks. Yeah. Here's the thing. The UK explicitly agreed to a Northern Ireland protocol as part of its withdrawal agreement earlier this year to keep that border open between Ireland and Northern Ireland. In order to do this, 
It necessarily means that Northern Ireland would need to maintain the European Union's product standards in terms of certifying agricultural products, like how pure your dairy is, how your cattle are treated. No, seriously, it's stuff like this, how pharmaceuticals work. There's literally thousands of regulations that the European Union imposes on stuff like this for, for safety and, and quality. And the deal was Northern Ireland gets to stay in the European Union's standards regime, basically. And these standards are often higher than the UK's internal standards. It's more expensive, right? The UK is going to want to have lower standards after it leaves so that they can compete more effectively. Their stuff will be cheaper. If I ever need pharmaceuticals, remind me to get the ones that were made in the EU. Exactly. Not the UK. <laughs> not the UK. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is one of those, pharma, those strategic industries that I was talking about. And so if Northern Ireland is still part of the EU's uh, customs region, this also means that there's going to be a customs barrier in the Irish Sea between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. Are they going to do a, like a South China Sea kind of thing and make some artificial islands to put customs uh, <laughs> I don't officers think so. on? Or? I think it's more conceptual, but the idea is once products go from sort of England over to the, the Irish island, right, through the Irish Sea, basically when they're in port, they need to do the customs stuff in Northern Ireland, even though Northern Ireland is still politically part of the UK. And this also means that the UK might need to pay EU tariffs if it, you know, depending on the deal that it gets between the UK and the EU, it might need to pay those tariffs on goods sent through Northern Ireland to Ireland or the rest of the EU. That's a big old hassle. It's a big hassle and it's kind of weird for a country or I guess a, a principality, a region, <laughs> a member of the United Kingdom, like Northern Ireland, to be part of the, the uh, United Kingdom and also the European Union simultaneously. Yeah. Not a problem w when the UK was part of the EU. Now it is a problem. One with no easy solution. Yeah, there was no easy solution, but there was an agreement called the Northern Ireland Protocol that Boris Johnson's government agreed to earlier this year. And this internal market bill, which hasn't passed yet, but is being considered by the conservatives in the UK parliament, explicitly overrides that treaty agreement that the same government made earlier this year. And by doing that, openly flouts international law. <laughs> in response to this bill advancing to parliament, the Tory government's most senior senior legal advisor resigned in protest because he's like, "You got like this is in bad faith. You, mm -hmm. You're not supposed to be able to do this. Like you're violating a treaty you agreed to." Sure. And meanwhile, the U.S. Congress has said that it will not ratify any post-Brexit trade deal between the United States and the UK if a hard Irish border is reimposed. American diplomacy played a huge role in the Good Friday Agreement. And obviously, there are lots and lots of Irish Americans mm -hmm. in the United States, mostly in Boston, but not entirely. Who, <laughs> who wouldn't, do not want to see a return to just violence ravaging that area. Well, yeah, it's, it's no good. So, you know, even, even the Americans are looking at this 
just wondering what the heck is going on with in Boris Johnson's head that he thinks he can get away with this. And the European Union basically thinks this is a hardline negotiating tactic to go back and renege on this deal that he made and not necessarily follow through completely, but kind of dangle it over the EU's head saying, ah, you know, we might actually have a hard border after all. We might just undo that thing that we agreed to if we, we don't get what we want with these fisheries and the state subsidies or level playing field stuff. Yeah. Well, I think if the US Congress is serious, then losing the option to have a post-Brexit trade deal with the US... Kind of a big deal, right? It's a big deal, and I don't think Boris Johnson is going to do anything that results in that. Right. And that's kind of the problem with his negotiating style is like he's just not very credible because the stuff that he tries to do is too crazy. (laughs) 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 But it's still problematic. Here's the deal. If the UK and the European Union can't reach a deal by the end of this year, we get a no-deal Brexit. And this could actually happen. And it would be pretty bad. What it means is that the relationship between the two would fall back to the World Trade Organization's basic trade terms between any two members of the WTO. So there are like sort of baseline tariffs and quotas that are dictated by WTO membership. uh, And they're above zero, (laughs) which is what they currently are (laughs) between the UK and the EU. And anything above zero is going to be pretty disruptive. And in some cases, it's, it's way above zero. Yeah, depending on the particular industry. We're talking about the reimposition of tariffs and quotas between some of the world's largest economies who are also trading partners. And so this could disrupt uh, the UK economy, certainly, the EU economy, and the world economy. Right. Ripple effect. Yeah, although a lot of the risk of this happening has been recognized for a long time, so markets have kind of priced it in to a certain extent. But it could still cause kind of a fairly major speed bump, I would say. Sure. Yeah. Even really small numbers, uh, like percentage wise of tariffs, become large numbers in terms of money when you're talking about like massive amounts of yeah, goods. billions, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars. Yeah. yeah. The Confederation of British Industry predicts that a no deal Brexit would mean that 90% of the UK's goods exports to the EU would be subjected to tariffs from the current 0%. So that's 0% to 90%. And the UK exports about half of its goods to the rest of the European Union, making it by far the largest UK export market. And on top of this, over half of all UK imports came from the EU. So a really big chunk of the United Kingdom's economy is dependent (laughs) on trade between the UK and the EU. So a no-deal Brexit is more than a little suicidal, basically. The only thing I can say to that is, wow, because it (laughs) also seems more than a little possible. Yeah, at this point, it is very possible. On top of this, London, the capital of the UK, obviously, Big Ben, Parliament, yada, 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 Buckingham Palace. Say, all say that a jazz. few more London landmarks so our yeah, listeners uh, know where you mean. What is it? The Gherkin? That that gigantic building that looks like a kind of like a cross between a cucumber and a pineapple? You know what I'm talking about? 
Anyway, another landmark is the city of London, which is the financial center of Europe. It's, it's where all the banks are, basically. And its status as Europe's financial capital is under threat. And financial firms operating in the UK have already shifted about 7,500 staff and $1.6 trillion of capital worth of assets to the EU. $1.6 trillion. Yes. That is a good amount. Obviously, they hold way more than that, but it's, it's, it's hedging behavior, right? This is what you start to do uh, if you uh, see things going south. You start moving towards the door a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. If you don't like what's happening in the room. So the bankers see the writing on the wall and they're like, well, we don't know that this is going to happen for sure, but enough damage has already been done and the risks of more damage are high enough that we need to start moving some assets around. Serious stuff. Okay. As we usually do on this show, we're going to dive into a little bit of the history behind all of this. So here's a section I'm calling a very brief history of Brexit, starting with Brentrance, which is nowhere <laughs> like near that. as good as Brexit. But <laughs> I like it, though. That's funny. Uh, excellent. I got Pete's seal of approval, yes. so I'm riding high. Well, let's start in 1973, when the UK joins the EU's predecessor, the European Economic Community. And this is well after the other major European powers, like France and West Germany, particularly. There's a reason for this. France, under Charles de Gaulle, vetoed the UK's application to the European Economic Community in 1962 because he felt that the UK was a Trojan horse for American influence. Perhaps accurately. Because the UK and the US were very, very close in the early Cold War. Mm -hmm. So... It took until 73. The UK joins late. And after it joins, the UK, France, and eventually reunited Germany are the EU's top three dogs in terms of size, power, and influence. And in some order, depending on what time you're looking at and whether you're thinking about military, diplomatic, political, or financial, Mm. economic. But it's those three countries. Those are the Troika, basically. The UK was a late joiner, and it was always less keen on tighter European integration than France and Germany. It was always kind of ambivalent. The UK barely ratified the Maastricht Treaty in 1992, which was the document that formally created the European Union. And it only managed to do this after securing a bunch of carve-outs, special deals just for the UK. Tony Blair's government doesn't join the euro, which I think got underway in 1999 and formally came out in 2001. The UK keeps the pound sterling, keeps its own currency. And on top of this, UK aids the United States and Iraq, while France and Germany do not. And we see this sort of independent streak from the UK and it's actually less an independent streak than it is an Atlanticist streak. So it's closer to the US than either France or Germany is. We have the quote-unquote special relationship with the UK because, of course, the United States comes from the United Kingdom. Yeah, they burned down Washington, D.C. a long time ago, but you know we helped them in both world wars, so it's all good. Water under the 
London Bridge, my friend. There you go. Or perhaps the water water flooding the channel. I don't know. Fast forward to 2015. We have Conservative Party Prime Minister David Cameron holding a referendum on whether the UK stays in the European Union. And that seems like a crazy place to fast forward to from Tony Blair's government. But the thing is that in the 2000s, the EU expands a lot, especially to new Eastern European members. And the cool thing about the EU is that if you're from an EU country, you can move to any other EU country, just like you or I could move to Idaho or Vermont from California, and nobody could boot us out as much as they would want to because they hate Californians. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Same deal, open immigration within the EU. But this was pretty unpopular in conservative constituencies because you got a lot of quote-unquote Polish plumbers. This is the stereotypical character that came to some of these villages, really, and competed for jobs. And it's like the typical sort of populist complaint. It's like immigrants taking our jobs, right? Yeah, I've heard that one. This is, yeah, totally. But this is a very powerful political football. And it's legitimate. People really didn't like these immigrants coming in. Irregardless of how you or I feel about open immigration, uh, there are disagreements about this Mm -hmm. in every country, including the UK. Mm -hmm. And these disagreements led to this referendum in 2015 from David Cameron. He assumed that the referendum would be voted down and this would sort of bolster his position in the government. But instead, the Leavers scored a surprise victory over the Remainers in June 2016. I wonder if if he still thinks about that every single day. I hope he does because it's caused so many problems, right? (laughs) He was like, no, we'll just do this referendum. The Leavers will get blown out, you know, like... 60 40 70 30 something like that then they'll shut up and i'll continue to run the government and not have to deal with these these peasants basically right in these villages complaining about polish plumbers guess what the leavers win incredibly and this is an upset akin to donald trump's election in november of the same year but it leaves the conservatives with a big problem and that is so we have a referendum that says that the, e- the uh, UK is going to leave the EU. It doesn't say how it's going to leave the EU, in what shape, right? There's a million different ways for the UK to leave the EU. The simplest possible way is to just bomb out with no agreement. But that's also quite painful. And Parliament was not willing to countenance that, <laughs> especially not in 2016, when they started looking at this and realizing that, whoa, if we suddenly we have hard borders between us and the European Union, it's going to crash our economy. We've had no time to prepare for this. We just drive right off the cliff. So we need some time and we need to negotiate a deal that can pass both parliament and that the European Union will agree to. So they have a double challenge. And this leads to three and a half years of political chaos in the UK. Cameron is gone. His successor, Theresa May, still a conservative, 
fails to get a deal that is acceptable to the EU through Parliament three times over the course of these three and a half years, leading to a resignation. Her successor, Boris Johnson, who took over last year, adopts what might charitably called daredevil mentality to Brexit. Some would call it a kamikaze mentality. (laughs) (laughs) And his position is simply, I'm going to get this done no matter what. To the point that he purged uncooperative lawmakers from his own party in late 2019. So this is a guy who basically rode Brexit to power by saying, I'm going to get this done, come what may, right? To the point that he even ended the political careers of some of his allies in the conservative party that were like, wait a second, like there's still a risk of a no-deal Brexit. <laughs> like, <laughs> and his position has always been, I don't care. That's right. And he says, I don't care, because from what I've read, in his mind, this gives him credibility to negotiate with the European Union. He is holding a gun to his own head, and the European Union... If he pulls the trigger, the European Union will get splashed, right? But the UK will be dead. They don't want the UK to just die on their doorstep, right? So they have this crazy guy threatening crazy things. It's the madman theory of negotiations. Also known as the art of the deal, right? Art of the deal, exactly. Or selling past the clothes, if you prefer. This works really well as far as UK politics goes. He crushes Jeremy Corbyn's Labor Party in like what amounts to a generational defeat. So the conservatives are completely in control of the government starting in 2020. They have no opposition to speak of. And this victory allows the UK to formally notify the EU of its intention to withdraw, which it hadn't actually done yet. And this starts the clock that is going to run out on December 31st of this year. Meanwhile, I mentioned earlier that there are four members of the United Kingdom that make it united. There's England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland, right? Those are the four. Mm. Scotland and Northern Ireland voted to remain pretty overwhelmingly, the people that live in those two kingdoms, I guess. They do not want to withdraw from the European Union. And the fact that they're now going along for this ride that they really don't want to be on is leading to an increased drive for independence in both places. So this has, in some ways, destabilized the United Kingdom while stabilizing England (laughs) in particular. (laughs) So, Pete, what's going to happen? Well, I mean... As per usual, we don't know for sure, of course. But We don't um, know anything. (laughs) (laughs) Here's what I do know. There is still time to overcome these issues and come to a deal. It is possible. Okay. So there is time. There are going to be more more meetings scheduled. There are. Yeah, one thing the EU is really good at is just conducting summits and meetings interminably. They're amazing bureaucrats. (laughs) So the European Commission which is the EU's executive branch, are going to meet again in November and December. But this is kind of cutting things pretty tight because 
the UK has to ratify this, the parliament, and the European Union has to ratify it um, at the commission level and at the parliament level. Oh my God. <laughs> which could happen pretty fast, but like it's probably going to take several weeks to a month to kind of get it done. Yeah. Obviously, if they need more time, perhaps more time can be found. But at a certain point, deadlines have to mean something, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, this has gone on for a really long time, and everybody is just so sick of it. And they're so sick of Boris Johnson, too, <laughs> on the European side of things. <laughs> Here's the thing. In order for a deal to get done, somebody is going to have to blink. And they're going to have to compromise on, on these issues, probably. As I alluded to earlier, Boris Johnson's holding the gun, but it's kind of pointed at him, not the European Union. Right? The European mm -hmm. Union is a far larger economy than the UK and would therefore suffer much less proportional damage from a no-deal Brexit. There was a recent estimate by, I think, a think tank in the UK suggesting that the cost of Brexit without a trade deal would be about 4% of GDP over the course of 10 years, which is just an, an instant recession in a box for 10 years, basically. Mm. Um, not so great. That's a no deal. The cost of Brexit with a trade deal over 10 years, 3%. Not amazing, but definitely better than 4%. <laughs> yeah. Are the differences between those two numbers in terms of their real-world impacts enough to be a huge incentive to get a deal instead of a no deal? That's a really good question. I think... Certainly for anybody who understands business or is in business, the answer is yes. <laughs> because the actual goods and services going into that single percentage point are immense. And you know, we're talking about businesses surviving or failing as to whether or not they can continue to export to the European Union without a 10 to 15% handicap in the form of a tariff. Got it. Yeah. It doesn't sound like much, but it actually really is. Here in the United States, we say that 2% growth is pretty good, and 1% growth is basically dead on arrival. Hmm. And you can really feel the difference between 1% and 2% growth, or 2% and 3% growth. 3% growth is gangbusters. Got it. So yeah. that percentage point is big, actually. It's actually very big. And... You know, they're leaving the European Union, so they're going to get kind of screwed. We're talking about minus 3 and minus 4%. And I was just saying that 3% positive growth is gangbusters. 3% mm -hmm. <laughs> negative growth is the opposite of gangbusters. It's bangusters. Yeah. This represents a, a headwind. So there will probably be better growth than that. But it's just going to make everything harder, basically. Yeah. So that's what's going to happen to the UK under no deal. You look at the European Union, right? And it is the elephant being threatened by an ocelot or something like that. <laughs> Only 6% of total EU exports by value was sent to the UK in 2018. And this is actually down a little bit <laughs> over time. So it's, it's just not very economically relevant by comparison. The EU is too big. Of course, when you disaggregate that, when you pull it apart, 
and look at what's behind those numbers, you see that a no-deal Brexit would actually hurt certain politically important industries within the EU pretty badly, like German auto exports, for instance, to the UK. The British buy a lot of Mercedes-Benz and Beamers, I guess. And those would be slapped with tariffs if there was no deal. And so it hurt those industries a lot worse than the the average uh, European business, I guess. Gotcha. So there is a fair amount of political pressure to get a deal done from the European Union as well. It's not unilateral by any stretch of the imagination. And Boris Johnson thinks he can take advantage of that. Is Boris going to blink? He might not. Who knows? He might lose control of the situation. <laughs> Here's what he said this week. The UK doesn't want a no-deal Brexit, but we can more than live with it and prosper mightily. No big deal. Okay. <laughs> that flies in the face of all available evidence, but he is certainly making it sound like he believes what he is saying. Hey, he, he more than lived with COVID and prospered mightily. <laughs> yeah, that's it appears right. so far. I don't know. It looks to me like he's dropped some weight, which he needed to do uh-huh. on, on his own recognizance. So good for him. He doesn't want to climb down now and admit that he's bluffing because then he loses any remaining leverage to shape that trade deal, right? If he, if he just puts down the gun, he's like, all right, I was never going to shoot myself. I was just, I was just kidding. Then they're like, yeah, you're, you're just a BSer. Like, we knew that. And now you've admitted it, so we're not going to give you anything, right? Right. So he's kind of boxed in by his own strategies here, right? By his bluster. His bluster, yeah. And while Boris Johnson is politically secure, he won that huge election, uh, a huge mandate earlier this year. He still has problems on his right flank in the form of this guy, Nigel Farage, and his Brexit party. Guess what the Brexit party stands for, Pete? <laughs> yeah, I think I can guess. Exactly. Nigel Farage is, is this kind of character who comes on TV and advocates for Brexit. He's, he's been doing it for quite a while now, I think 10 years or so. Here's what Farage had to say. I sense there will be a compromise, that there will be a deal by the end of the year, and it's one that will not fully satisfy many Brexiteers. When asked if that meant he could re-enter politics, because he kind of jumps in and out, depending on what the status of Brexit is <laughs> with, his, with his Brexit party. <laughs> it's a single-issue party. Farage said, let's see where we go with this. If they completely drop the ball on Brexit, meaning if we finish up stuck with a level playing field, <laughs> unable to be competitive, then there are more battles to be fought. If you can't be competitive on a level playing field, there might be something wrong with the underlying argument you're making. <laughs> it's just hilarious. It's like, I don't want a level playing field. Hell no. We, can't, so we want can't to tilt it. on that. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you're trying to negotiate and you're just like, oh no, no, I, I don't want to negotiate in good faith. I want to negotiate in bad faith. <laughs> <laughs> there are more battles to be fought. Yeah, it's like Farage and his party seem even less interested in retaining the UK's reputation as a good faith negotiator than Johnson. That's, I mean, there would be no Brexit at all without Nigel Farage, right? That is right. Uh, he and single-handedly is almost responsible for it getting started. 
I think that's he's had a lot to do with it for sure over a long period of time. And he is, yeah, I think unabashedly a British nationalist. He doesn't care about Europe particularly. He thinks Europe can take care of itself. Does this sound familiar? Um, <laughs> and he's like, look, these guys are partners, but they're going to crush us if we're on a level level playing field. We need to fight unfair against them <laughs> and like make them like deal with that. And it's it's just like, well, okay, but you're not holding any cards, so that's kind of tough. It'll be interesting to watch from across the pond. I think so. My prediction is that the EU will probably blink on the fisheries issue because I think that there are, I don't know, 20 plus member states that want the the seven states that uh, are are into fishing to basically come to Jesus on this and they'll make Macron back down and accept some kind of compromise. Mm -hmm. I think they're a lot less likely to compromise when it comes to the level playing field stuff, because that gets right to the heart of what free trade means. Mm -hmm. It's, it's supposed to be on a level playing field. It's supposed to be win, win. It's not supposed to be win, lose. Right. Yeah. And it's a way of saying like, Britain, you asked for this. Now you have to accept what it really means. Yeah, you have to take some medicine here. Like you're not going to get everything that you want. Otherwise, first of all, countries would be leaving the EU more readily, right? There has to be some bitter taste in the medicine for that reason. Mm -hmm. They want to deter other leavers, number one. Number two, like it's just hard to have a relationship with somebody who's constantly cheating. (laughs) (laughs) makes it tough you know you need some level of trust and like johnson is proving himself to be pretty untrustworthy at the moment so i think they're going to stand firm on that and if they stand firm and johnson loses control of the car right and crashes we're going to get a no deal and i think right now i think it's 60 40 no deal well if if there's some more meetings going on between the uk and the eu in december and then December thirty first is the deadline. Yeah, I think you're you're probably right on those on those yeah. odds. Yeah, I mean, depending on on what remains, they could they could totally pull this off and get a deal done. And Johnson's rather asinine negotiating tactics could actually bear fruit. He's just he loves the risk, man. And I understand the the game theory of it, which is if you can demonstrate that you don't care about losses and you can inflict losses on somebody else, right? That gives you added negotiating power. You're like, you never want to approach the crazy guy, right? <laughs> yeah. You don't know what they're going to do. They might hurt you even worse than they're hurting themselves, right? Right. Because it seems like they have nothing to lose. So Exactly. Yeah, that's the theory. We're going to find out. And... That is our check-in on Brexit, Pete. Good breakdown, man. Good talking to you. Good talking to you. Talk to you next week. Sounds good.